at the end of the Sonia Poulton podcast that we did, the first one, there was a discussion about the neuroscience of adults who abuse kids. And following us premiering that podcast, Dr. Good and I corresponded. And Dr. Good really expanded on what we just discussed at the end there in so many minutes. Dr. Good has written numerous books. We've got two of them here. We've got Understanding and Addressing Adult Sexual Attraction to Children. These books are available worldwide on Amazon, and we're going to have all the links in the description box below this video for Amazon USA, Amazon UK. Dr. Good's also written paedophiles in society and I did put a video up on my channel about whether I wanted the viewers to let me know whether I should interview a paedophile and it was like a lightning rod for all these people said absolutely not some people said yes we need to understand them better and we are going to expand on that in this interview but we're also going to be talking about this in the context of Epstein, Savile, Prince Andrew, etc. And Dr. Good has got a question that she would like to open this with. Do you want to read that for us, please? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, what do Jimmy Savile, Edward Heath, Jeffrey Epstein, Jelaine Maxwell, Prince Andrew, Michael Jackson... Bill Clinton, other royals, the Rotherham grooming gangs and other grooming gangs, uh, the uh, Tapas Nine from the Madeleine McCann case, and your uncle, a relative of yours, theoretically all have in common. And what I'm suggesting is that what they may have in common is an idea, for example, that they're more important than somebody who's younger, weaker than them, that interactions are always on their terms, not reciprocal, that social and cultural expectations will work in their favour, not in your favour, any attention that they choose to pay to you is always positive or neutral. It's not harmful, any sexual attention. And often people who um, have a sexual interest in children will often think, well, I like sex, therefore sex is good and positive. That's what Prince Andrew said in the interview. They said to him, you know, you've got these allegations of this stuff. You're saying you don't recall or remember it. And he goes, well, sex is a positive thing. I would remember it because it's such a positive thing for a man or something like that. That's what he said? Yeah. yeah. Yes. I th I, yes. Yes. And I think, so whatever it is that they choose, what they happen to define as sex, for them is a positive experience, good and a positive experience. So therefore, their sexual attention to you is going to be a positive benefit. And they would often, people would often feel, well, you're fortunate that I choose to pay you 
this attention. Now, that might be on a whole sort of sliding scale. And so, for example, it it can present itself for some people simply as a kind of a creepy, perhaps, you know, um, I, I adore you, I worship you, I put you on a pedestal. So I'm not necessarily really seeing who you are as an individual. So a little six-year-old child for them may represent everything that's beautiful and, and, and fairy-like and, you know, sort of Disney and sparkles and things like that. Um, like with Madeleine McCann, Sonia said that one of the witnesses are people involved described as a little blonde angel, that's very right. striking. Exactly, exactly. Astonishingly bright. And you sort of think, really? Three-year-old? You know, um, and we'll come back to that because that's, that's actually quite an important point. Or they may simply feel like, well, you're a good kid, you know, and, uh, and I can make you better. I can improve you. And again, there's, there's this whole sort of strand of, uh, the idea of the, if you like, the middle class man picking up a working class boy and, and, and helping him, teaching him, grooming him, if you like. But they would see that as, as being in a positive term. And then, and then that can sort of flow into, um, more of a sense of, um, I don't care about you that much, you know. Oh, you're still around? You're still existing? You know, you're not that important. Um, and then, again, that can go into uh, a- another uh, sort of attitude, which would be you're just, a, you're just a manipulative person. If you're still around, it's just because you, you, you want money, you want to exploit me. Um, and right over at this end, you're a filthy slut who should probably just die. So you've got you've got these all of these sorts of attitudes, and so you might have, for example, the, the kind of the creepy uncle. I'm, I'm I'm using you know in inverted commas. It could be sort of any 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 kind of relative who 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 seems to have a sort of a, a slightly odd, bit off attitude towards a child. And then you've got perhaps people who are like the football coaches, uh, teachers, um, maybe social workers, people working in residential homes or stuff like that, who may see the child as, you know, you're a good kid, you know, and I can help to, to, to make you better. I can help to improve you or, you know, right up to you're a manipulative person and, you know, just, just go away. You're just telling lies. Um, and then obviously you've got right up at the, at the sort of, if you like the far end of the spectrum, you've got possibly people like, um, kind of Fred West or something right at the extreme end, um, who just feel that, um, you know, people, some people deserve death. So you've got that entire spectrum, if you like. Um, and, um, and so that's, for me, that's sort of what I wanted to do with that question was I wanted to begin to sort of introduce and think about how, how can we take all of these different situations where children, uh, vulnerable young people appear to have been abused or exploited. What can we, how can we tie those all in together? And what can we see as the overarching themes? How can we make sense of that and relate that back to everyday personal experiences that we ourselves may have had as well. So as you can tell, we're going to get deep into the Chomo world here today. But before we do so, what makes you qualified to talk on this subject, please? Because you're a freelance sociologist. I'm a freelance sociologist at the moment. So um, I I am a sociologist. I've got a, a, a doctorate in um, medical sociology from Warwick University. 
Um, and I then went on and uh, worked as a senior lecturer at a university um, and I, I ran a research center. Um, and back in 2004, um, I became interested in um, thinking about how do we as a society make sense of and understand um, people who sexually abuse children. Uh, and back in 2004, there was a really big campaign that was going on by the NSPCC. Um, and so these leaflets were sort of being included, oh, sorry, God, <laughs> being included in um, uh, journals and magazines and things like that. And one of the leaflets was talking about um, paedophiles are cunning Pedophiles are manipulative. Um, Pedophiles are many. And they were kind of, it was sort of building up this notion of pedophiles as being not humans, as being sort of like predators, you know. um, They're not your uncle. But they're not anybody you know. They are those people over there. And therefore, only specialists can do anything about it. And therefore, you have to give money. To, the, to, to, to charities, to the government, to experts to go and deal with these terrifying people over there so they never come anywhere near your children. And we know that none of that is true. We know that children get sexually abused almost exclusively by people who are known to them. So therefore what we're doing when we're talking about paedophiles and predators and so on, very often is what we're doing is we're, we're telling stories. We're telling stories that make us as adults feel more comfortable. But what they don't do is they don't keep children safe. So I thought, well, on a very basic level, none of that makes sense psychologically. You know, we we need to think about this on a much deeper level. and 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 we just need to use common sense about it. So... I, I, I wrote, um, I think I wrote a paper for a conference that was talking about we need a, a, a new model, a new way of thinking about, about paedophiles. And somebody got in touch with me um, and he said um, he'd like to have a copy of my, of my paper in advance and so on. But the interesting thing was he wrote to me from a particular email address. And because I'd been doing research about online paedophile websites, I knew that the email address was linked to a particular pro-pedophile website. What was the uh, in, what indicated that to you? What indicated that was that he used the word Alice. Alice is a code name in the same way that Lolita is a code name, um, because uh, Alice is linked to uh, Charles Dodson, who wrote as Lewis Carroll. He wrote the Alice in Wonderland books in real life. The Reverend Charles Dodson um, had a almost certainly platonic relationship with some little girls, including a little girl called Alice Little, who was probably about nine, I think, around that time. Um, and if we go back to what I was saying at the beginning um, about your, this notion of your creepy uncle, for example, and, and this idea of worshipping and adoring um little girls in particular and putting them on pedestals and kind of idolizing them and this appears to be what Charles Dodson did with little Alice Little. So he is known in the 
what what's called the the girl lover community. He's known as a girl lover, whether he actually was or not in real life, we we can't know. But that's why uh, the, the 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 name Alice has become a sort of a code name. So when I saw that it came from an email address that included the name Alice in it, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I wrote back to him and I said, you're very, you know, welcome to have a copy of my my paper. And and I said something very sort of, um, you know, um, carefully worded, like, um, and it would be quite interesting to talk to people for whom this is a relevant issue or something like that, you see. Created the need. And he wrote back to me and he said, I am an out paedophile, self-identified paedophile. And not only that, but I am in touch with hundreds of other paedophiles who are not in contact with any authorities. So when you say an, an out paedophile, what does that mean? It means that he um, was sexually attracted to children and he um, was trying to be open about it. So he was somebody who was sexually attracted to children and, as far as I know, has never acted on that sexual attraction. And he's, and he and I had, um, I mean, we were in communication for quite a long time, and um, he said to me that if he was in a situation where he thought he might be left alone with small children. So, for example, if he was, you know, at, 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 at a friend's house and they had children, and he would try and quietly say to the adults, I'd rather not be left in a situation where I'm on my own with the children. And, and if he needed to explain, then he would explain it's because, you know, I have a sexual attraction to children. So he was trying to create... Um, a kind of a safe context, a safe environment where he could live without ever harming children. And I thought, gosh, I didn't know that such a thing existed. I didn't even. The people watching <laughs> this, this is just going to absolutely blow their minds. Yeah. And I can't imagine what kind of comments going to come on this. But... Yes, exactly, exactly. <sighs> a, lo a lot. I mean, when I talk about this, you know, and I've talked about this a lot to the students and professionals and so on, and there's a whole range of, 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 of mixed emotions. And, of course, one of the emotions is, hold on a minute, if he's a paedophile, why isn't he in prison? He's not in prison because he hasn't um, committed any offence. How do you know he hasn't committed any offence? Why do you trust him? So then you've got to think, okay, that puts somebody who, who has thoughts of being sexually attracted to children, that puts them in a really difficult double bind. And so if we take that a step back and we think, right, let's just do a thought experiment here, okay? And I want people to imagine that they are for example, say they're a 16-year-old boy, okay? You're a 16-year-old boy. You're beginning to be very aware of sexual feelings. And you're beginning to notice that the people that you find sexually attractive, let's say, are 13-year-old, um, 12, 13-year-old boys, let's say. Are you saying pre-pubescent boys? There are... Well, if we, if we say boys around about the age of, of... I'm thinking about a particular person here who's told okay. me about their life story, okay? Okay. Um, but I mean, uh, what I want to do is I, is, is I want to invite people to sort of Im imagine that this is them. And they notice that, that, that they 
for whatever reason, when they have sexual fantasies, it's, it's a 12, 13-year-old boy that pops into their mind. And as, as life goes on and they, and they get older, they notice that the, 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 the people that they're fantasizing about are not getting older along, along with them, that they continue to be sexually interested in 12, 13-year-old boys for example, or six-year-old girls or, you know, what, whatever it is. But, but, they, but they begin to realize that they have a sexual attraction which is not shared by other people and is not age appropriate. What do you do in that situation? And I think for an awful lot of people, they would find it very, very difficult to talk about. And what they might do if they were feeling kind of brave, is they might go online and they might uh, say Google uh, um, paedophilia or something like that. Um, and certainly when I was doing this back in the 2000s to demonstrate to people, um, you would Google the word paedophile, paedophilia or whatever, and, and within uh, the first three hits usually you'd get uh, Wikipedia coming up. And Wikipedia, as you know, has external links coming off it um, and depending on who had edited Wikipedia at that time, um, those links would lead you to completely legal, legitimate, what I would call pro-pedophile websites. So within a couple of clicks, you might find yourself on the internet looking at a website that might say to you, for example, that sexual attraction with children is, is, is perfectly fine um, or um that it and it might uh, encourage you um to to um to not act on it but it might also normalize it and encourage you to act on it and i never went on the dark net so i'm talking about websites that are incredibly easy to find within a couple of clicks so those websites for example at the moment i think the 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 two big websites still are um annabellelee.net which is the girl lover website, and um, Boy Chat, which is the boy lover website. And also, when I was uh, first researching, um, there was a website um, called Pualula, which means little girl in Latin. And it was called Pualula, and then the strap line was um, a celebration of the splendor of little girls. So we're back again to this idea about idolizing and adoring these special little girls. So, um, so if you're if you're a young man, for example, and you realise you have these sexual thoughts, there's a huge amount of information information out there on on the internet that you can access, leading you down one path or another. So this this particular guy who got in touch with me, and I'm going to call him Kevin. Um, so Kevin was an adult man who was in this position where he was sexually attracted to children. And he was trying to think to himself, okay, how do I live my life as, as a decent, honorable, ordinary person? So do I just pretend to everybody that I'm your bog standard, ordinary heterosexual bloke? Um, and, and I'll always carry this secret inside me that nobody knows about me. And for whatever reason, that didn't sit comfortably with him. And he wanted people to actually kind of know him for who he really was. Um, so he made this 
astonishing decision, if you like, um, to actually sort of, as I say, be an out paedophile and, and to say to people, I am sexually attracted to children and I'm not going to act on it, but please don't put me in any kind of situation where it's sort of tempting to me. And, um, and I still don't quite know what I think about that, but I think if we are going to be absolutely serious and honest about keeping children safe, then we need to be much, much more thoughtful about how we respond to people who are sexually attracted to children. And we need to be much more serious and, 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 and thoughtful about if somebody's sexually attracted to children, what are we going to do to make sure that they don't act on it and that no children are harmed? And if we go around as, for example, the Sun newspaper certainly used to, um, you know, evil, sick pedos, you know, monsters, blah, 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 right? If that's the only message that you're receiving as a young man, you're going to be thinking to yourself, okay, I'm, I'm sexually attracted to, to children. You know, I've kind of realized that and that's an incredibly heavy and difficult thing to, to get my head around. Um, and then I'm being told by tabloid newspapers and so on and, and, and blokes down the pub and whatever, you know, that um, that, that must mean I'm a paedophile and paedophiles hurt children and paedophiles are, 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 are evil and wicked and so forth. Um, and and there's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do to stop. And and what I would like to do at this point is if I can just read a quick little extract yeah, from, yeah, from a guy who I've called David, who was in this exact um, situation. And people watching this, you know, this has come about because of our exploration into the Epstein case. We're trying to cover every single area we can of that kind of activity interviewing all the different experts interviewing people you know associated with the case we're, we're leaving no stone unturned and dr good has come on here today and we're going to go over the psychology the neuroscience to try to understand how people like epstein why they think the way they do and why they behave that way and at the conclusion we want to suggest some ways that society can be improved by looking at this in a different perspective than the knee-jerk reaction that you just described the tabloid newspapers are advancing. Yeah. yeah. So this is something which is, is happening in the lives of we don't know how many young men, okay? Um, it appears to be, I mean, there's very, very little research done on it, but if we use kind of like ballpark figures, we can say that approximately one in every 100 men, roughly speaking, one or two in every 100 men will have a primary or exclusive sexual attraction to children. Okay. So we're, we're not talking about incredibly low numbers. We're talking about people who you may very well know in your own life type of thing. So these are the words of uh, a chap when he was about 16. These, these were the sorts of thoughts that he had. 
he, he began to realise that, that he was what is called a paedophile. As the realisation of what this meant set in, it started to dawn on me that paedophilia as a disease must be like a cancer, a cancer of the mind. What I knew about cancer was that it's a disease that starts off very small, so small you wouldn't even know it was there. As time goes by, it begins to consume everything around it to the point that by the time you find out you have it, it would more or less be too late to do anything about it. Then it would kill you. I realised that paedophilia had started off small. I didn't even realise I had it all this time. I'm only 16 now, and that's why I'm still a good person. But as time goes by, paedophilia would slowly consume all that was good and decent inside me. And then it would only be a matter of circumstance and opportunity before I started raping, beating and destroying boys. There would be nothing I could do to stop it. Every night these thoughts would circle my head time and time again. Fear started to grow, slowly at first, but very surely. Something's coming, I thought, some kind of remorseless and shameless joy from raping and beating innocent boys. Night after night, alone in my bedroom, fear was growing and growing. To feel alone in the world with a cancer, and he knew he could never win. To walk around with a worried face or to act any differently would draw questions from parents, teachers or friends, questions I most certainly had no answers to, and a personal issue I could afford no one in my life to find out about. At night time, when I was alone in my room, that's when Pandora's box would open and all hell rode out from it. How could, how could anyone live with the shame of sexually abusing boys? How could anyone continue to live with the shame of knowing that they are destined to destroy boys? I started to think more about the concept of suicide and what it meant. It meant I was never going to hurt any boy, guaranteed. I then began to realise that what I was going to do through suicide was to actually save boys and anyone who acts actively does something to save another, especially children, is called a hero. The term paedophile means a destroyer of children, but I'm going to be saving boys, not hurting them. It means I'm not a paedophile in any way, shape or form. So he decided at the age of 16 that he would kill himself and um, he reached the point, as, as you did, for very different reasons. Uh, and, and he decided um, that he would slit his wrists and, and, and bleed to death. So he was sitting there on the edge of the bathtub with the, with the razor. And for whatever reason, he managed not to do it. And, um, and I think he realized that actually the stories that he was being told were wrong, that he had a choice. And uh, when he wrote to me as part of my research, I think he was in about his mid-30s, and he had managed to live happily and successfully as a complete non-offending paedophile. So somebody who has that desire in their head, but who is managing it, controlling it, and keeping children safe. So, but that's a that's not a story that we've ever heard. I mean, that was completely new to me. I'd never, I'd never come across anything like that. And so the guy who got in touch with me and told me that he was the out paedophile, Kevin, and he said that he was in touch with hundreds of other paedophiles as well. Um, so as a sociologist, I thought, okay, this, this actually needs investigating. This is something that, that is really not being talked about. So I, um, I, 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 I managed to set up a, a research project. It was quite difficult. It took quite a long time. Um, and 
I got so much data that it actually, it ended up being these two books. So um, what I found out was um, something, something about the, the, the kind of the interior world of what it's like to be a man, mainly, most of them are men, in this society who is sexually attracted to children. And I'm not saying that all the people that I interviewed were wonderful, law-abiding, non-offending people because some of them were not. Some of them um, understood that adult sexual contact with children harms children. Some of them decided that they would not interact with children in that way because they understood that, that they would harm the children. And some of them decided that they would not act on their um, impulses and their desires because they wanted to look after themselves and they wanted to stay safe and not go to prison. Um, others of them uh, felt that, it, that uh, sexual behavior towards children was entirely justified. And okay, and we can t we can talk about that in, in, in you know about. Can you just stop you for one second? Yes. So are people watching this video, then I know some of them are going to be thinking, "All right, we wish that guy had just killed himself." Yes. That's going to be a visceral reaction. Yes. And some of them may say, "You're sympathising with paedophiles." What do you say to those people? Yes. Okay. And 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 absolutely. And I mean, I've had similar thoughts myself. Okay. Um, I I, I think for. Everybody, uh, sexual abuse of children has pretty much affected everybody in society in one way or another. You know, it's either happened to you, or you, or you, or there's somebody close to you that it's happened to. Um, or alternatively, as I'm suggesting, you know, there are thoughts in in people's heads that they're carrying around in their heads, and they're not and they're not addressing. So. Would it have been better if this 16-year-old boy had slit his wrists? If we're talking about child protection and we're, we're literally saying this child should have killed himself, you know, we've got child protection wrong there. Because the, at the point when people begin to realise quite often that they have this, um, this deviant sexuality, if you like, this, this, this sexual attraction towards children, they are quite often young people themselves. When it begins. When it begins, right? At the point when they begin to think, hold on, this is weird, what's happening here? And they try and make sense of it. And then they, uh, and it may take them into their 20s until they can finally sort of say to themselves, oh God, this means I'm a paedophile. But, but the process, you know, is, is starting at, at around about the point when, when we all still start thinking about sex, you know, kind of in our mid-teens or whatever. Um, so... I think I think we need to to, to think about that. I'll, I'll just tell you a little um, anecdote about Kevin as well, who is uh, the guy. He's in America, and when he was a teenage boy, um, he um, um, revealed that he was sexually interested in children. He was uh, taken to a hospital. A psychiatric hospital, I think it was. Um, he was, he had adults, he was lying on a bed, he was surrounded by adults who were all incredibly angry with him. One of them took a large pair of scissors and said to him, I'm going to cut off your penis. 
and he believed it. And he was shocked and traumatized. Um, is this the right way to behave in order to keep children safe? No, I don't think it is. I think what we need to be doing, absolutely, the, 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 the most important thing is that we keep children safe. That's the number one priority. But the way that we need to keep children safe is we need to be realistic about it and we need to be honest and truthful about it. And I think for, for too long, we have told ourselves fairy stories about monsters and about those people over there. And I think we are moving towards a time now when we can actually begin to talk about us and sexuality. What is it about human sexuality? What is it in particular about male sexuality um, that can have these elements of a lack of empathy, of a, a desire to dominate, or control, um, those those kind of aspects um, taking without consent and so forth. And I think when we have these knee-jerk reactions that say, well, we should just kill all paedophiles or we should just castrate all paedophiles or something like that, we need to realise, well, we're never going to do that anyway. That's never going to happen. And some of the people that we're talking about are people who are known to you, who are members of your family. Every paedophile is somebody's child, right? Somebody's brother, somebody's cousin, somebody's best friend. And wouldn't it be better if that person could turn to you and say, I'm really struggling with this. You know, I'm really, I'm really worried that I'm going to do something that is going to be very, very harmful. And that you give that person support and, and hold them accountable for their actions. That's how we keep children safe. By being honest and talking about it and treating each other as accountable, moral adults. So I think that's, that's one answer to the question of, um, would it have been better if that person had just killed himself? And, but when we go back to people who have actually harmed children, so when, when we're thinking about, um, going back to thinking about Jeffrey Epstein, for example, um, or the other people that I listed who, of course, theoretically may or may not have, have, have harmed um, children. But there seems to be attitudes there around harming children. How do we stop them? What, what, what do we do? Um, what do we need to change in our culture and in our society to, to keep children safer? I think I think those are the, are the sort of questions, aren't they, that we need to be addressing. Um, and over the last 10 years, I would have said the last five to 10 years, there's been some amazing changes and developments that have happened that, that are actually very positive. Because I think up until now, this story has just been so relentlessly negative, hasn't it? You know, these awful things happen to children. And, um, and, and we feel full of rage and we feel full of helplessness and when we hear about you know elite pedophiles for example 
and we just, I, I, I mean, and I feel it too. You know, you, you, you feel this frustration. You feel absolute rage. How dare they? How dare they get away with it? You know, what can we do about it? And I think one of the ways that we can deal with that is by, um, well, certainly by, by looking at resources that have come up very recently um, in just in the last few years. So here in Britain, there's an organization, for example, called Stop So, which is the specialist treatment organization. <sighs> I'm trying to remember now exactly what it stands for. Specialist treatment organization for the prevention of sexual offending. And the, I think you're, you're going to put the link to the website. All the links will be in the description box to all of the resources, yes. So, um, so somebody who is worried about their sexual thoughts about children, for example, can now go and get in touch with a therapist who's local to them who can offer them specialist help. And that's never been available before. So before, if you wanted help for your sexual thoughts about children, you actually had to have abused children first. And then you'd get into the criminal system. Um, and then if you had a sufficiently long sentence, you might get sex offender treatment program. And that was basically pretty much all there was. Whereas now, um, if you are troubled by uh, thoughts about, you know, that you may sexually harm a child or, or an adult, um, you can go to Stop So and you can and you can get specialist therapy. That's one resource that wasn't there before. Another resource is um, this amazing site called Verped, short for virtual, uh, vir sorry, not virtual, virtuous pedophiles. Um, and so what we've got on the internet now is we've actually got uh, a community of people who are, um, who are out again as pedophiles, um, but who are very, very clear that they're not going to harm children and who are supporting one another to do that. And again, I think we need to be not too naive about that. I think we need to be quite sort of careful and it needs to be monitored. Um, but I don't think that because somebody is sexually attracted to children, that necessarily means that they're automatically different from us, that they're automatically a liar, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Um, so I think... I think it is perfectly possible for somebody to feel a sexual attraction to children and never act on that sexual attraction and live a happy and successful and fulfilled life. Some people who are sexually attracted to children are also sexually attracted to adults, by the way. I don't think everybody always knows that. Well, in Epstein's case, he was attracted to teenage girls lowest reported allegations about 12 mm. but it seems generally the girls are coming from royal palm beach uh mm. high school mm. um so 14 15 and um he had women in there as well that were um of legal age yeah he did joke to some of the younger ones that you know once you get this so, so old you, you know you know you're no good to me anymore things like that make these horrendous remarks um, but was he camouflaging by having the older um, women in, the older girls in? Was he trying to camouflage? Perhaps I don't know. What do you think? No, I think that he was—he's—he was probably um, somebody who was just uh, 
basically just very i mean very very interested in in sex with a whole, with a whole range of people and he and he and it and it's more probably about sort of power and exploitation you know um so i mean this is the thing that people think that pedophilia is just is just one thing it's just one particular box or something so like that so many different categories exactly and it's a continuum as well so um people who um who are sexually uh, interested in children can be interested in sort of prepubescent children uh primary school age children toddlers babies you know um and and it might be just one very narrow age range that they're interested in or it could be a very wide range age age range um you get men who are uh sexually interested in adult women but also sexually interested in prepubescent boys for example so you've got this whole sort of um sort of range which again i think um we we're not always you know aware of we we just think that pedophile means this but actually there's a, there's a whole range of things within there and talking about epstein i just wanted to um uh, mention a, a a thing when he was having that interview that that you talked about in a previous podcast with james b stewart jeffrey epstein told uh, the journalist criminalizing sex with teenage girls was a cultural aberration and that at times in history it was perfectly acceptable and then Jeffrey Epstein went on to say homosexuality uh has has long been considered a crime and was still punishable by death and is still punishable by death in some parts of the world. And so what was interesting to me was that Epstein there was using three different arguments to say that what he was doing was okay. So he was saying uh sex with teenage girls uh is is uh the, the idea of of sex with teenage girls being wrong it's just a cultural aberration that's one thing he was saying um so he was saying there are, there are particular times in history uh when it's been completely acceptable and then he was saying look we've got this example of homosexuality uh which used to be a criminalized type of sexuality uh and and then we realized that we were quite wrong to have criminalized it and, and now homosexuality is absolutely fine therefore we can use a similar comparison with the idea of pedophilia. So that's three arguments which a lot of people who are interested in sex with children tend to use. So it's moral relativism. Well, it's 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 well it's it's cultural relativism in a way because what they often say is uh look there are particular historic times go back when to the ancient Greeks. The ancient Greeks is a is a classic one yeah. when people had sex with kids or there are particular um communities there are particular cultures where it's perfectly normal for people to have uh, adults to have sex with kids so um they used to talk about um for example the trobian islanders or something like that um so that there were different communities um uh, and um what did the islanders do well that uh, that uh, little little that that it would be normal if you like for little girls to be having sex with adult men and that nobody would get you know terribly excited about it and so on. how much choice those little girls had is a completely different question um and, so and how much damage it does exactly to the victims. exactly so yeah. so so i would argue that it's <laughs> these kind of justifications which people come up with you know that oh well it was okay then or it's okay 
sorry, uh, it, you know, in, in this particular culture or whatever. And, and I would argue, no, it's, it's never okay. And it's not, it's not, um, that it's, um, uh, to do with our culture, you know, it's, cause again, one of the excuses that people come up with is, um, when you have sex with this kid, the thing that harms the kid is not you having had sex with the kid, but the reaction of all the people around. That's what they right? say to yes, justify it. That, that would be one of the justifications. So if they didn't okay? react, you wouldn't be stigmatised. That's what they say. Yes. Okay. And, and, and we need to talk about, for example, Alfred Kinsey, who was the guy who wrote the two biggest reports on sexual, sexual behaviour in human male, sexual behaviour in the human female. Um, which are like the foundation works of sexology from the 1940s right up until now. And Kinsey certainly argued um, that it wasn't adults having sex with kids that was the problem. It was these um, uh, inhibited, moralistic, sex-negative people, you know, around them who were going, oh, you know, getting terribly excited and hysterical about the whole thing that was causing the problem, right? And 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 I would argue, no, that isn't what you know. Children are not adults; they are not developmentally ready. They're not biologically ready. They're not psychologically ready. You know, the 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 human brain develops over a period of time, you know, and it goes through developmental stages. And having sex with an eight-year-old is going to harm that eight-year-old no matter what the context is um, because that child is not developmentally ready for sex. So, but it's interesting that Epstein used um, the, the idea that it's a cultural aberration, that uh, there are, there are uh, historical time periods where it would have been quite acceptable, um, and uh, using this argument, if you like, the argument from homosexuality. And, and people also use, um, they use a whole range of different arguments. One of the arguments that they, uh, they use is from um, uh, bonobo apes. I don't know if it's pronounced bonobo or bonobo. But yeah, the anyway, bonobo, yeah. The bonobo apes, yeah. right? That because the bonobo apes are, are, are really sort of sexual and everything like that, then, then, then that must mean it's okay for uh, men to have sex with small children. <laughs> So, so, mm. so, you know, they, they, they go through all of these different kind of arguments. Um, and it's, and it's, it's very interesting because again, when I first started researching this area, I kind of had this naive assumption in my head that, that we'd, you know, we'd, we'd passed that stage. We, as a society, we all agreed that sex with kids was not okay. And then I discovered really to my shock, that there's a huge um, academic area which argues that it is okay for adults to have sex with kids, all right? Um, and who's behind that? Yes, that's a very, very good question. And it, it certainly, it didn't start with Kinsey, but um, Kinsey was hugely important. So Professor Alfred Kinsey... Um, he he did the um, what's supposed to be the biggest study on human sexuality that had ever been done, um, and it resulted in these two huge books: sexual behaviour in human male, sexual behaviour in human female, which completely transformed how 
uh, Americans thought about sex and then how, how basically everybody thought about sex. And a lot of people really, really liked Kinsey because uh, his work helped to um, normalize things like masturbation um, and um, it, it helped people to understand that actually a heck of a lot of people were, were having affairs, for example, um, uh, and, and also he helped to decriminalize homosexuality. But the problem with Kinsey is he wanted to decriminalize all sex. And if I can just find a little quote for you. Yeah, go for I will, it. I will try and... I've got lots of quotes here that I want to That's try fine. make sure that we, we get through all these quotes because they're really, really important. In the description box below this video, there's going to be a link also to Dr. Good's lecture that she did for the Humanist Society, I think it was. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, I watched the whole thing. <laughs> and we're going to be getting to the Jimmy Savile stuff, but she did reference and give a lot of information about Savile in that lecture. But we, we will be going over that uh, later in this podcast as well. And like I said, you know, we're, we're trying to get inside the mind of the paedophile mm. and understand the different types which has been so brilliantly explained so far. And, you know, what what kind of mind it is that was Epstein possessed to do these heinous crimes. And we'll, we'll also get onto Prince Andrew as well. Um, not as prolific an offender as Epstein, but definitely got some issues there we need to discuss mm. with, and, with Andrew. And I think, and it and it's, so, so we're talking about, if you like, the elite paedophiles, but we're also talking about, you know, the fact that, Child sexual abuse is so widespread across our whole society. As I said, it, it, it has an impact on all of us one way or another. And like you said about the uncle, it's usually someone mm. you know, someone yeah. in the family. Some, yeah, it's not this dark, sinister character just predating. It's uh, somebody that you know you might have a relationship with in a normal way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And then people always go... But, I, you know, I can't believe it. How how could I have known, you know, but they seemed so normal. Yes, of course they did, you know, because, because you know, they, they, we are normal, essentially. You know, every, everybody is normal. Um, and some people hurt children, and we need to be very, very sophisticated about that and very aware of that. So this is uh, Kinsey talking about sexuality. And he said, there are only three kinds of sexual abnormalities. Abstinence, celibacy, and delayed marriage. Think about this, he said. So Kinsey is basically saying there, the only abnormal sex is no sex. He's not talking about consensual sex or non-consensual sex. So rape, paedophilia, bestiality, yep. necromancy, he's saying all those are normal. What? He, yes. Well, he's saying that... Um, he's saying that, yes, that that is sex and that there's, there's nothing wrong or bad about any of that. He says there are no forms of sexuality which are wrong. The only forms of wrongdoing or crimes which can be committed in relation to sex are to abstain from or prevent sex. Okay? 
And in his book, and it's a great thick book like this, um, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, there is one reference to rape. And I think that reference is to false allegations. And in the uh, human behavior, in the, uh, the sexual behavior in the human female, I think there are three references to rape. And again, one is to false allegations, one is to dreams or something, and, and, and one is to uh, religion or something like that. So, so it, apparently, according to Kinsey, no such thing as rape. No such thing as rape. No such thing as non-consensual sex. So if, and, and, it, and it gets worse, actually. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll also read you some of his stuff around uh, children as well. And that is echoed in the Prince Andrew and Epstein case because as much as people are up in arms, up in you know, they're disgusted by what's happened and want justice, there are people, I see comments nearly every day from people saying things like, well, the girls Epstein was with, you know, they were asking for it. They were buzzing because they were with like famous people yep. and they weren't underage really if they're not um, prepubescent. Yeah. And, they're just you know, little whores anyway yeah, or something like yeah. that. Yeah, and, yeah you know, I've Andrew went with a 17-year-old. What's the big deal about that? Mm, mm. Um, she was doing it for money, so what does it matter? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. There is an, an undercurrent of, of, of that coming in constantly. Yes. Which, of course, is exactly what happened when you got like the Rotherham grooming gangs, gangs and stuff like that. You know, oh, well, they're just little tarts, you know, and so it doesn't matter. You know, the fact that they were being sexually exploited and sexually abused doesn't matter. We don't care because we've labelled them, you know, in the same way that when prostitutes used to get murdered, you know, and the police used to go, oh, just a prostitute. And thank God they've changed that attitude now. But anyway, so but I wanted to read you um, some of the stuff that uh, Kinsey has talked about uh, sex with children. I mean, you, you mentioned bestiality as well. And he has an entire chapter on sex with animals. <laughs> and, and his idea was that that's perfectly fine. Perfectly okay. No problems with that at all. Um, and he, let me see what I can find. Right. So he he talks about um oh dear I can hardly read some of this stuff but anyway so he's basically talking about uh what what they used to do and and there is still an an, an institute called the Kinsey Institute I think it keeps changing its name a bit but it basically they're still part of the University of Indiana I think and they still defend what Kinsey did and they still say that Kinsey did nothing criminal even though his researchers say it was illegal and we knew it was illegal but we still wanted to get the the data so what they say they did was they talked to um sexual offenders in prison about what they had done with children but what they were actually doing was if somebody was having sex with a child and kinsey and his research team knew about it they would give them stopwatches and they would say, time it and see if you can get an orgasm out of this kid. Right? No way. Yep. And there are literally oh. tables, tables of, I, I can't remember how to do it, 300 plus children, you know, where they are recording this stuff. What year and the was funny this? thing is, what year was this? I think it was like 1948, 1949. But the, oh. but the funny thing is, right, these have been textbooks, basic textbooks. I mean, when I've talk to, to um, uh, doctors and, and pediatricians and professionals and so on. And I've said to them, have you, have you heard of the, the Kinsey reports? Everybody's heard of them, right? And 
have you, and then when I say, have you actually, have you read them? No, nobody's read them. They've only read about them. And when you actually get them and you read them and you, and you look at the tables and so on, you know, they, he's talking about masturbating babies. Oh, Orgasm Jesus. has been observed in boys of every age from five months, uh, a, a, a baby of four months, and then he also talks about newborns. So, and I, I mean, we can't know, but Kinsey and all his researchers were, they were all family men. How are people putting up kids to be able to, to be researched on like Well, that? this is what I'm saying. They were all family men, right? So the assumption is some of those children, if you're talking about newborn babies, some of those children were their own children. Mm. But they were also... Um, going into uh, nursery schools, you know, there, there was a there was a huge amount of data. But the, but the trouble is, if you've got people who think that that's okay, they will they will give you access. Jesus. And there's a, there's a particular quote again that I want to read for you. Right, this is a man called Wardle Pomeroy, and he was part of the research team with Kinsey. And by the way, if anybody watched, there's a film called Kinsey that was that was that came out a few years ago. I don't know a Hollywood movie starring Liam Neeson and Laura Linney, I think, as as Mrs. Kinsey. Um, and it was full of lies. I mean, the, the the director, I can't remember the director's name, but he knew perfectly well because he must have read it. He must have known what Kinsey was doing, and yet he kind of, mm. you know, makes makes Kinsey out to be some kind of hero. So I mean. It's, so this is, this is Wardle Pomeroy, who was like the right-hand man of Kinsey, working with Kinsey. And he also, I mean, all of these people have been awarded, um, uh, I mean, they're all, you know, professors, they're all directors of institutes. They were, they've all been given, you know, honours and medals and what have you in, in sexology. And he's written books called Boys and Sex, Girls and Sex, Your Child and Sex, A Guide for Parents. And in a published interview, he stated his view that girls should learn to have an orgasm as part of their growing up. It isn't nearly as important whether she has intercourse when she's young or pets when she's young. The real important ingredient is whether she has orgasm. The girls who have orgasm when they are young, as early as three or four... What? Yes, but anywhere along in pre-adolescence, are the ones who have the easiest time having an orgasm in marriage or as an adult. It's a real learning experience. And it doesn't make much difference how she gets it. We compiled all the sex histories we got of women who, as children, had traumatic sexual experiences with adults. Rape, cruel and unusual punishment, etc., and we found that as adults, they were more responsive sexually than the rest of the population. Now, that's really weird, okay? And I've no idea what he talks about when he says cruel and unusual punishment. I and mean, God knows what people were doing to these children. Um, and all of their research was completely weird. I mean, if you, if you, it's, it's all in my books. I've kind of, you know, I've, I've kind of laid it all out and explained why it's quite bizarre. But I tell you what, that quotation kind of made me think and I, and I and I certainly have to not be um in any way kind of like libelous or you know I don't want to get sued in any way but when you think about somebody um maybe like Ghislaine Maxwell right 
who appears to be sort of hypersexualized in a way, um, and appears to have no sexual boundaries and and no sort of capacity to understand the notion of consent or not consent, or the notion of vulnerability and not exploiting vulnerability. And then you when you think about people like that and you think about well maybe what kind of experiences did they have that led them to have an an, an attitude towards sex like that what kind of boundaries might have been broken for them yeah, i'm just i'm just reading the assassination of robert maxwell now and mm -hmm. what the whole maxwell family mm -hmm. some very sinister things happened in that family yeah yeah, yeah. so obviously we can't know and we shouldn't jump to conclusions and we don't want to be saying anything that's in any way kind of like libelous or litigious or anything like that. But but there's, there, if you are brought up thinking that this kind of like framework of adults, if this framework of adult sexuality has kind of been put on you when you're a small child and distorted what your own experience of sexuality is, then it's very, very difficult for you then when you yourself have become an adult, to understand what it might be like for for a child, another child. Do you see what I mean? You, 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 there's, a, there's, a, there's a tendency there that you might reproduce some of that um, violation and some of that intrusion that you yourself experienced as a small child. So what happens then when you get, you know, we're going into, we've gone into the mind of Epstein a bit. Mm -hmm. You brought up Ghislaine Maxwell. Mm-hmm. As a two, theoretical, two different you know. minds, but when those minds come together, mm. we've seen the carnage around the world. Mm. Is that something that's common in your research, or is that unusual? You got a, a male and a female, and sexual abuse of children tends to be something that men do more. So it's rare what we've seen with Epstein and Maxwell. I think. Um, Again, it's very, very difficult to, to put any kind of figures on it. And I'm very, very wary of doing that because, as we know, the great majority of child sexual abuse never actually gets reported. So it's very difficult to know what the baseline figures are. So to then sort of try and start making statements about who it is who's doing the abusing and stuff like that becomes very difficult, very problematic. Because I think there's there's a, there's a lot of um, sexual abuse that we're, we're still not hearing about, um, and and I think perhaps to an extent the role of women, I th I think it's very difficult for um, men in particular maybe to talk about a sexual abuse by women when they were children. Um, I, I think that, that, I mean there's huge amounts of shame clearly for anybody trying to talk about this issue. And then I think when you when you sort of bring in um, a female sexual abuse, it seems to bring up a lot more shame for, for men in particular. Um, so I think I think the I think we still don't know. And I one of the basic points that I that I made earlier on um, is we don't know how many adults feel sexually attracted to children? It's a very, very basic question. And we could answer that question. If 
if there was the political will to do that, there is um, a survey that comes out every few years which asks questions uh, about sex of of people in Britain, for example. I, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, there's the British Household Survey, but there's another one that specifically asks questions about health and it asks questions about sex and so forth. And I've asked them to put in a few questions about um, just um, just questions like, have you ever felt sexually attracted towards a child, or something? Like, have you have you ever masturbated to to thoughts of of children? Have you ever um, accessed uh, images, sexual images of children, or something like that? Um, which people could answer anonymously in the same way that they're ask, answering questions about have you got I don't know herpes or something like that. But we haven't reached the point yet where where professionals are ready to even think about those questions and putting them in questionnaires. So so the result of that is we don't flipping know. There are some studies that have been done, as I said to you, which suggest that something like 1% to 2% of all adult men um, are primarily or exclusively sexually attracted to children. And something like maybe around 20% of all men one in five of all men have the capacity to be sexually aroused to children under certain circumstances. And it's something like 3% of all women, maybe. So so we've got kind of ideas. We've got indications. Going back to the women then, mm. um, victim statements in the Epstein case say that Ghislaine wasn't just procuring, mm. she, was she was participating yeah. with sex toys, threesomes, all this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think she was doing that because she was a paedophile or she was doing it to satisfy Epstein? I think that's a very difficult question. Because um, women doing that is so rare. It is rare. It seems like Epstein's, as as know. Epstein's drive was the main drive. She was definitely a facilitator, but she, it seems like she wants to keep him happy. I don't know. And obviously the... The um, you know, the victims, the the survivors, uh, would would have a much much better sense of that than than uh, than I could have. Um, well, the survivors' think, statements say they were both very cocky about yeah, it all, and yeah. just. I mean, my sense is, as I was saying to you, that if you've got um a kind of uh, a template, a sexual template, which evolves over your childhood. And if that is distorted and broken and damaged at a particular point in time and you continue to um, to accept those ideas that you were perhaps told, you know. So, so thinking about that quotation by Wardle Pomeroy, who is basically saying, if you masturbate your little child, the age of three or whatever, you're doing her a favour, right? It's a good thing. Going back to the to the to the things that I was saying right at the very very beginning of this interview, um, that I'm giving you my attention, and my attention is a good thing, and I like sex, whatever sex means for me. Sex is a good thing, and therefore, if I give you my sexual attention, I'm doing you a good thing, right? And if you, if you, and these people totally believe that, masturbating newborns, all of that stuff, right? 
if you're brought up in an environment which is giving you those messages, then it's very, very difficult, I think, without therapy to kind of like step back and question and evaluate and think, well, hold on a minute. At what point was I able to, you know, develop my own kind of authentic ego boundaries and so on with, without having these people kind of, you know, this, this notion of psychic intrusion. Um, there's a there's a an amazing woman called Judith Herman who's done a lot of work on trauma, and she did work on on things like the Stockholm syndrome and um, so she so she looked at um, kidnapped victims and she also looked at domestic violence victims and she looked at the ways that human beings respond to and cope with trauma. You may very well know some of this stuff, John. Um, and 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 sexual abuse survivors clearly child sexual abuse survivors. Are, are dealing with trauma in very specific ways, um, and it, and it, and it's hard work to undo some of that, some of that trauma. And I just want to, before we kind of like move on to the next topic or whatever, I just want to also so so there's Kinsey, who's talking very very openly and clearly about this this notion of completely boundaryless sex, where there's no concept of consent, you know. And even his biographer said, um, Kinsey thought there was nothing inherently wrong or there's nothing inherently unpleasant about male genitals. So therefore, any negative reaction to male genitals must be learnt. And I was thinking about that and I was thinking, well, there's nothing inherently wrong with, you know, French kissing or something, but you wouldn't go up to a random stranger in the street and stick your tongue in their mouth. Do you know what I mean? So it's not about, again, it's completely missing the idea of consent. And, oh dear, yes, all this business about orgasm from children and things. And oh. I know, it's heavy stuff, isn't it? New Newborn girls being masturbated to orgasm. <sighs> Immediately at birth. What seem to be sexual responses have been observed in infants immediately at birth. So I'm assuming that that may well be, who knows, his own children or something. And there's a woman who is still a psychiatrist today at the University of Hawaii. I mean, a lot of these people are still around. Um, you know, we're not talking about, I mean, Kinsey was back in the 1940s, but a lot of these people are, are right now. So this is a woman called Dr. Elaine Yates. She wrote a book, Sex Without Shame, which was originally published in 1978, but you can get it on Amazon. You know, it's available on the internet. And she is very, very keen on adults, uh, mothers and fathers, having sexual contact with their babies. The babies? The babies, okay. I've never heard of any of this. Stuff. I know, I, exactly. Before I researched this stuff, it you know I had no idea. But then when you look, it's all over the flipping shop, you know. Yeah. And it's and it's at many many different universities, in many 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 textbooks. This idea that um, you're doing a kid a favour, right? Because you're you're helping them to become more sexual, etc. Um, so there are there are many books like this. This is an example. She, oh dear, yes, it reminds me of um, 
again, people think that Nambler is a joke, you know, this North American Man Boy Love Association and so on. That was that that's real, that still exists. There was a there's an organization called the Rene Guillon Society, which literally had as its slogan, sex by year eight or else it's too late. <laughs> and okay, so this is Dr. Yates. There is one event that occurs in all strata of society and that provides youngsters with intense erotic stimulation, incest. Mm. While incest can lead to serious problems, it's not always harmful, etc., etc. Incest does not necessarily produce damage. The girls I have evaluated who were young, uncoerced and initially pleased with the relationship remain emotionally unscathed even after protracted incest. However... They may be devastated by the social consequences after discovery, which brings it back to what I was saying to you before. It's not the sex with the kid that's harmful. It's, you know, these hysterical social workers getting, you know, excited about it or something. When these girls move out into school and the community, they swiftly form gratifying liaisons with more appropriate males. They retain a taste for older partners, such as foster fathers. Male mm. teachers, doctors, and policemen. <laughs> right? So this is a good thing, according to this psychiatrist, that these girls are serially abused mm. by the adults in their lives who ought to be looking after them. I had no idea there were people in this world who even thought like this. I know. You see, we don't. And and I think one of the things about the the, the scandals around elite paedophilia and so on, is that it's opening up this box where we thought, but we thought everybody realised that sex with kids was harmful. No, unfortunately. There's a whole strand of sexology which says it's good for the kid. Mother, I'm going to read you some more oh if, you can, if you can handle it. If you can ha- I'll just read you a bit more, okay? Mothers, because this is getting back to women again. Okay, because we were talking about women. Yeah. Mothers who are erotically evolved with their infants raise sexy children. And, of course, the most important thing is to be sexy, you know, not to be safe or secure or, you know, come from a, a protective family. The application of delicately scented and delightfully creamy lotions to the genitals isn't just for hygiene. Lotions and oils are highly sensuous and the genital contact distinctly erotic. What difference does it make anyway to call a spade a spade? After all, good mothers have always patted and powdered the penis and swabbed the clitoris. I'm not sure that they have, but there you go. There are certain exercises. So she, as a psychiatrist, and she says in her book, for some bizarre reason, that she has participated at many, many children's births. What she's doing as a psychiatrist doing that, I don't know. And she encourages from birth the mother particularly to be sexually um, stimulating the baby. So she prescribes exercises for them to do. These are designed for use in the first six months of life. The first exercise may be begun on the delivery table and so forth. Ah, da di da touching the penis and touching the clitoris and so on and so forth. Breastfeeding, da di da da changing diapers, and so on and so forth, uh, bathing the child and so forth. Um, 
yeah, parents who have followed the suggestions in these chapters or who have in other ways communicated acceptance and enjoyment of sex have promoted a solid erotic foundation. So, oh, yeah, yeah. okay, let's just stop a second. I, I want to take that onto the McCanns, by the way. I'm a desensitized person in general. I can hear the uh, hardest. Yeah, I'm really sorry. I can hear, we the, hardest a... I can hear the hardest hitting <laughs> stories from prisoners and all kinds. I'm about to throw up, honestly. I feel sick. Yes, I'm really if sorry. If I feel sick. I'm very, very sorry. I'm sure I a lot apologize. of the people watching this. No, don't, don't apologize. <laughs> You're doing a really good job. But the fact that I'm feeling this sick is a reflection of how brilliantly you have portrayed these criminal minds. But I just want to just stop for a second and just say a few things to the viewers here. Viewers out there right now who perhaps are feeling sick um, might be wondering, you know, why? Why are we doing this? What Where are we going with this? I think it's very important that we try to understand the mind of these people. So I invited Sarah on to get us in the mind of the likes of Epstein, Maxwell, Prince Andrew, and... Her ability to do that has, has exceeded my expectations. I wasn't braced. I'm really I, sorry. I wasn't ready for, for what, what she's just said in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes or so. And I'm sure some, some of you are feeling like that as well. But in the beginning, the Epstein thing came on my channel because people asked me, you know, he's in prison, what's going to happen to him? Prison questions playlist, prison channel. And when I get into a subject, I like to do... I consider myself not a quick learner, but a slow and methodical person who just goes over every subject, matter within that subject, the sub-subjects, interviews as many people as possible on every angle of the subject. And we've not had anyone in here at all, like like Sarah, that's <laughs> got this unique knowledge from her research. And, it, you know, it, it is um, really... What's the, what's the word? Not, not fascinating, but um, it's necessary. It is, it, is, it is fascinating to get this out there to people, to, to show them that these, these individuals do exist, because I, I didn't know that they did. And I've, I've met a lot of criminals. Obviously, the Chomo um, prison population is separate. And I am told that, because um, sex offenders have their own yards in, in some cases, there's like a hierarchy whereby, you know, if you've molested a baby, you're at the bottom. If you've molested someone older than that, you're higher up and so on, so on. So you get to like slightly post-pubescent and things like that. So there's all, I was aware of the different gradations yeah. of that. Um, but the bottom line is, as well as trying to understand the mindset of these people, we're here today to try and figure out how society can be improved and the end goal is to have less victims. You know, a lot of the people I've interviewed on the podcast, behind a lot of crimes, there's a childhood tragedy. And these heinous things that happen to these kids, the victims carry them for the rest of their lives. So we're not trying to sympathize with pedophiles here. We are trying to understand them by not completely ostracizing them to prevent future victims. And that's where we're going to get to at the conclusion of this. So my sick, sick, sickness feeling, my sickness fact has gone from 10 <laughs> to about seven right now. Oh so I think we can, we could get back into this. 
Um, okay, I... yeah, you, wherever you would like to go next. Okay, one of the things I wanted to, to, to sort of bring in is thinking about the, the McCanns, okay, Madeleine McCann. Uh, and what I'm not going to do here is say anything that could get me into legal trouble, okay, because all of this is theoretical, hypothetical, okay. Um, and, but <sighs> thinking about people who are sexually interested in small children and people who are kind of comfortable with a worldview that says that if you are sexually um, involved with a, a, a small child, you're not doing a bad thing, you're, you're doing a good thing, okay? Even though you might have to keep it very quiet because society is all repressed and, and puritanical and, and they don't understand, you know, the bigoted blah, blah, blah. Um, so, so you know that what you're doing with this little child is actually for their benefit, um, but, but it's our little secret. We keep it secret, okay? And when you've got people like, um, I mean, I don't know how much, I mean, you've obviously discussed the Madeleine McCann case quite a lot, haven't you? I've watched with, with Sonia's Sonia documentaries Sonia. on the Madeleine yeah. McCann case. I've watched the Netflix documentary that um, was kind of the opposite view. I've, I've looked online at the two sides. There seems to be a lot of, you know, arguments between them and different theories. Mm. And, the, and, the, and the, the, the basic point is that we don't know. We have no idea. Okay. So little Madeleine McCann disappeared just before her fourth birthday. Um, we don't know what occurred. But when I look at um, some of the um, things that were happening in that friendship circle of adults around that child, um, I... I yeah, it. I kind of wonder if we're looking for the paedophile in, in the in the wrong place because the idea has conventionally been poor little Madeline was abducted by a paedophile or a group of paedophiles or whatever. And I'm wondering, uh, well, I think we pretty much know she wasn't abducted because there was uh, the smell of corpse found uh, in in the flat. And the shutter wasn't jemmied open. So we can kind of, um, there is a view on the internet that she died in the flat. She was not abducted and, and the whole abduction scenario was constructed. Something happened to her, which suggests that she died. And there was some reason why um, her parents didn't want her her body um to be seen by um, officials, and therefore they hid the body. Um, and one wonders if something had occurred to that little girl in within that actual group. And some of the uh, statements by men in that group in particular uh, so I think uh, Sonia, in a previous podcast, talked to you about uh, the, the Gaspar statements. So there were there were two, uh, there was a couple who made a statement about one of the friends of um, 
Kate and Jerry McCann, where he was making sexually suggestive gestures uh, in relation to Madeline and possibly also in relation to his own little daughter, who was about one and a half or something like that. So I think both the little girls about that time were, were about one and a half years old. And when he was, when this particular person was asked to describe uh, Madeline, he used some very strange language. Um, again, talking about her being sort of a very, very well. Two of the adult men um, that, that sort of were in in Madeline's life talked about her in a way that made you kind of think, hmm, because they were talking about her being astonishingly bright, very charismatic, lighting up the room. Um, and, and, and using very kind of um, exaggerated language that made you think it's kind of, it reminded me of the kind of way that people were talking about little girls on that Poor Lula website that I mentioned at the beginning, a, a, a celebration of the splendor of little girls. And you sort of think that's an unusual way to talk about small girls. And was there something that was going on there? So, and and then, and, and people will say, but hold on a minute, you know, they were a bunch of doctors. They were a bunch of middle-class, well-educated doctors. How could they possibly, if somebody was sexually abusing a child or children in that circle, why would everybody have kept quiet about it? Why would nobody have reported it? And what I'm saying is because... There is this kind of um, cultural, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's a, it's a kind of a, it's not a, it's not a subcultural thing. It's not, it's not a, but it's, it's a kind of a, it's an understanding within mainstream culture that people, sort of will agree with around the edges to some extent. So uh, when you have, uh, I don't know, the, 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 the kind of the beauty pageants in America where the little girls, you know, have makeup and Jean all, sort of, all of that sort of thing, you know. And um, so the, the sort of the sexualization of small children, essentially small girls. And so there is part of our general mainstream culture which kind of agrees with that. Um, and uh, there was a very, very famous sexologist called John Money, and he um, talked about. I mean, he 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 has lots of different definitions for paedophilia, which I never ever use, because, for example, he talks about um, he talks about babies as being eligible partners. Okay, and I just think, no, that's not my worldview. You know, I'm not going to use. What I think is pseudoscience, you know, that has come from people like that who have these kinds of attitudes. So he will talk about like a nepiophile is um, a, a, a specific type of paedophile um, who's only sexually attracted to uh, babies in nappies. Or um, there's, it, it, I think he does talk about infantophilia or something like that. But, you know, and I just sort of think, no, we don't need to use pseudoscientific jargon. Um, and we need to be very, very clear that what we're doing is we're challenging these kind of assumptions and, and, and views. So I've mentioned some of the books. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to mention any more, but there's a, there's a whole range of books and there's a whole range of academics 
who present a a view which is usually not as um obvious as the 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 quotes that I've read out to you but they have the same basic view that sex adult sex with children is either something that we shouldn't get terribly excited about or uh, is actually positively beneficial so are you saying then that within the circle of the McCanns there were people who held that viewpoint who could potentially be suspects what i'm saying is um i wouldn't rule it out that i i don't want <laughs> i don't want carter ruck or anybody to come along and uh, prosecute me but um i i i wouldn't be surprised okay the reason why i mean in my book when i because i was writing those books at the time that poor little madeline disappeared and i assumed that she'd been abducted and i was you know horribly distressed as everybody was and 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 heartbroken and i thought how awful and traumatic for her parents and how absolutely terrible how could anybody be so unpleasant as to add to their grief and horror by suggesting that they were guilty in some way and one of the reasons why i did that was because um in portugal at around about that time there was a really terrible scandal that i think a lot of people haven't heard of very much called the casa pia scandal casa pia was um a, an a, i think it was a series of orphanages in portugal uh very very vulnerable children including children who were deaf blind um and and had disabilities and they were being uh sexually abused by uh, a whole circle of elite pedophiles in Portugal and it came out finally in 2002 but somebody revealed that she had tried to i mean somebody quite very senior like a a government minister or something i think revealed that she had tried to expose it in 1982 and she got death threats and um and the police said oh we've lost all the paperwork that you gave us we lost the whole dossier right and the the prime minister had been told all about it in 1980 and had done absolutely nothing and it just went on for years and years and before so they finally arrested some people and before they actually got to court lo and behold the portuguese um government had changed the law so that if you had done serial crimes against the same child i think it was you could only be prosecuted for one crime So if you had you know repeatedly over a period of years raped that little child you could only be prosecuted for for one rape or something like that I think and and, and eventually a small number of people ended up in prison and kind of that was the end of it. So we knew that there was um high level child sexual abuse going on in Portugal at that time. So that made it more believable that Madeline's disappearance was connected in some way with that. Because sometimes these kids are abducted, they put out an order, don't they? Get me a blonde kid with blue eyes and things like that, and then they go and snatch them. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know how how true that is or not. Because I wrote about Johnny Gosh. Right. This was a situation in America. Are you familiar with that story? No, I'm not. His mom. Um, he went out on a paper round, didn't come back. Oh. God. And they took him, and they were saying, you know. They took photos of him. They took photos of him in the weeks before the predators. The, the, well, not the predators, sorry, the snatchers. Yes. So they, the snatchers, have got orders to get kids by description, mm. and he fit the description, so they got him. Yeah. And then they hand them over. Yes. Yes. 
But from your work, you said that from the very beginning, you said it's someone you know, it's your uncle, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So you would have thought also that Madeline would have been taken by someone that she that, that, that she knew. Well, I, I believed, well, when the parents said that she'd been abducted and so on, and I just kind of like, as everybody else did, I just believed that narrative. Um, and like I say, because I knew about the Casa Pierce scandal, I, you know, it was clear that there were a lot of um, child sexual abusers in in uh, Portugal at that time and that the police were doing very little about it. Um, but that might be why people chose to go on holiday there. You know. Um, so, what, so, so what made you change your mind? Well, um, I was... Sonia Poulton... Um, really blew my mind with some of the evidence that she came up with. And then the more you look into it, um, the more you think, no, this story just doesn't make sense. I mean, like, for example, that the parents were saying from the beginning that the windows, the shutters had been jemmied open and the shutters had not been jemmied open. You know, and, and so you immediately start thinking, well, hold on, that that doesn't work and there's and there's a whole load of other the more you look into it the more you think this th there is some kind of cover-up going on so i wrote the uh the life story of a multiple homicide mafia killer called two tonys who left the dead bodies of rival gangsters from arizona to alaska under their code they never harmed women or kids so there's a chapter in the book where he describes all of the methods of getting rid of bodies that he was taught right. and that he utilized. On He worked for the Banano crime family. And his uh, boss was, uh, at one point, was Charlie Batts Battaglia, lieutenant of the Banano crime family. He'd, he'd whacked people from coast to coast and got rid of the bodies and never got caught. So with two Tonys telling me all this stuff about how hard it is to get rid of a body, mm. How does that fit in then to the theory that the McCanns got rid of the body? How how wouldn't that have been a hard thing for them to do? I know, and the very very strange thing is that cadaver odor was found in their hire car, which they'd hired twenty. I think it was twenty five days or twenty three days after Madeline McCann had gone missing. Okay. So that's. So that dog wasn't flawless then. No, what that suggests is that she'd been killed in the flat. Okay. The the body had been stored somewhere temporarily. Yeah. Then when the McCanns hired the car, uh -huh. they put the, her Maddie's body in the car and then took it somewhere else to dispose of it permanently. 23 days later. Yes, that's what that suggests. Okay. What, what the dog's evidence suggests. Or... Something that she touched could have been put in that car 23 days later. No, apparently it was, it has to actually have been the corpse. For the dog to hit on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know. Which is kind of like, again, you think they had some nerve. If, if they really, if, you know, mm. if, if, if that is really what happened. It doesn't, so, it doesn't seem feasible, does it? Because if well, all the spotlight's on them over that period of time. I know. How could they have access to the body? To put it in And they the won't be daft enough but, to put it in a car. Like well, that. and then apparently uh, the boot of the car was left permanently open day and night because somebody happened to walk past it and they said to the police, 
the boot of this car is open mm-hmm. it was day and night for, for a month or something like that and still the dogs could um smell cadaver in the boot and and they'd also put in uh, rotten meat um and so forth to c- kind of cover up possibly to cover up the smell this is all you know conjecture but um yeah so so there is evidence sort of if you like that 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 um that that did actually happen, and then they tried to cover it up by leaving the boot of the car open. So is that the theory that you lean towards the most? That the parents were involved. That is a theory that I do lean towards, and I, and and I, if I had to come up with some kind of um, account for what happened, I would say that, and and this is all purely hypothetical. That though within that particular friendship group, there was at least one person who was sexually interested in small children, possibly more than one. The there was a there was a thing that they did in that particular group where they the fathers bathed each other's children, mm. which is unusual. Mm. So so there are some indications that suggest something slightly odd was going on and there also seem to be question marks about where the children were actually sleeping um you know where the beds were and so forth um so it seems to me some it, some bad thing happened to madeline within that particular group of adults uh and it was bad to the extent that they did not want her body to be found and therefore they had to concoct the story. But there must have been more to it, in my opinion, because the the British government got involved so very, very fast and so many resources were thrown at them. And within about a week of their child disappearing, they're doing things like setting up websites and hiring PR people and hiring lawyers and so on. And you just think, I'm not quite sure why that would be a priority at that point in time to hire PR people and so on. So if I had to guess, my guess would be that a member of the elite was involved in some way within that particular friendship group um, and that that uh, connection had to be covered up um so i think that that's i wouldn't be surprised if evidence around that came out but at the moment there's no evidence at all it's just pure speculation um but that's that's kind of what i'm mulling over in my head okay now let's go on to your research about jimmy savile because that ties into prince charles and comes right back to the royal family as well eventually what what was it that what what made you look at Savile and what did what were your conclusions and what was your research? Right. Okay. Um. I I think I think the thing with Savile really was that he just highlighted for all of us um, how widespread the issue of child sexual abuse is, and um, and how it can happen in plain sight, and apparently nobody sees. And I think that for me that that brings in. Two, three very interesting questions, if you like. One, 
Why doesn't the abuser stop? Why do they carry on? Two, why do the people around the abuser not stop them? And Did you watch Louis Theroux interview the lady that worked for Savile? No, I didn't. So Thoreau did his first doc with Savile, mm. and then he did kind of an apology one. Oh, yes. In which he interviewed um, one of the ladies that worked for Savile, and she was like, she couldn't believe it, you know. She said he, he would never do anything like that. So she was still saying that Savile yeah. was innocent. Yeah. 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 And I think I think that this is this is one of the things that we do as human beings. Um, we have a mechanism which you can call nothing unusual is happening, <laughs> okay? So for as long as we possibly can, we assume that everything's normal. Right up until the moment, you know, that um, a, a fire breaks out or whatever it is, you know, and, and we have to react. But for as long as we possibly can, everything, everything is normal, nothing unusual is happening. Um, we also, another thing that we like to do, we do this thing called selective disattention. So if somebody is doing something slightly embarrassing or creepy or whatever, we pretend we, we didn't notice. And there's a very interesting thing um, in the Gaspar statement about Madeleine McCann, um, where the woman is describing how one of the members of the group has said this really weird sexualized thing about a small child and she says that after he'd said it and she looked around thinking am I the only person who heard that and she said there was a nervous silence and then the conversation started up again and everybody started talking again and you can just imagine how somebody has kind of like made it blatantly obvious that they're sexually interested in a small child and everybody kind of like oh okay and then they move on, change topic, change focus. In the same way, sort of like, I mean, selective disattention is even things like if somebody's, you know, walking around with their zip undone or something like that, you know, and we kind of all politely look away and pay no attention and ignore it. We do that. The other thing that we do um, is we, we like to believe the best in people and we like to not judge. So, for example, there was this, unbelievable person called Roger Took who was a he was a museum curator he was an art historian he was he was a member of the kind of like um um not the elite exactly but he was certainly a member of the establishment and he was he was sexually abusing children um and he was um he was involved he appears to have been involved in 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 rape torture murder of children, etc., and his wife found out, um, and she involved the police, and he went to court. He was convicted. He was imprisoned, um, and after all that had happened, one of his friends wrote to the wife and said, "We have no right to judge another person for what they choose to do with their life." Okay, and you think, oh, what? <laughs> but but th that is a very and, and the reason why we do that attitude is because it's very comfortable. It makes us feel good inside ourselves. Oh, but I'm such a nice person because I don't judge other people. Right? Oh, I always believe the best in everybody. And, and, and the trouble with that is that when we do that, we're actually not 
switching on our common sense and we're not keeping people safe. We're not keeping kids safe. Because there was a posh lady on Breakfast TV a few weeks ago. I can't remember her name. To and do with Prince Andrew? Yes. Do you yeah, know who, do you know I do know is? exactly the one you mean. Uh, lady Colin. And she was saying I that... I think is the one you mean. Epstein was only convicted of prostitutes. Yeah, it was nothing, nothing. Again, little yeah. whores. They're just little whores. So she didn't say that, but I'm saying it's, it's that attitude again, isn't it? Yes. You know, they don't matter. They don't matter. They're just exactly. these little people down here that don't matter. Yeah. All these, you know, again, with the group, the, the grooming gangs and everything like that. Well, they're just, you know, kids who run around and get drunk or something. So they don't matter. They're not important. So going back to Savile then and your research. Right. So... Yes. So what I wanted to say was, um, so these are some of the reasons why when somebody is sexually abusing children, these are some of the reasons why we see it and don't see it. And also, I think there's a, there's a bit about, I mean, you talk about snitches, right? And when you talk about snitches, I'm always kind of like not sure about that because sometimes it's a jolly good idea to tell the authorities when some bad thing is happening. I think there's, right? there's a loophole for um, child sex offences because <laughs> the convict code is KOS for sex offenders. I know, yeah. But if you prevented a victim by reporting a child sex offender, you're not going to be considered a snitch. I don't think in, okay. most, in most places. But you see what I mean? I mean, the trouble there's is... A contradiction. Exactly. And I think that that's, and I think it's widespread. I think that's in society generally. So, for example, when I was talking about um, the example of uh, a man who has a toddler sitting on his lap and he gets an erection, um, what would you do in that situation? What, you know, would you, and, and, and all these women were going, oh, I'd tell the police, I'd blah, blah. No, you wouldn't. Because you wouldn't snitch. Right? You would practice all of these other things of selective disattention. I didn't see that. Um, uh, thinking the best, you know, oh, it was a crease in his trousers or whatever. Um, you, nothing unusual is happening. You would use all of those processes right up until the moment when you, you absolutely could not avoid seeing it. So you're saying that even though Savile was so prolific because of that mindset you've just we, described, we have so many he got away with it. We have so many mechanisms where it's not polite to to notice. And we do that. It's not just about child sexual abuse. I mean, we, we do that in lot. I mean, we, I'm, we certainly do it with, with things like domestic violence. Um, but there are lots and lots of contexts in which we do that, where um, we actually feel embarrassed and ashamed for noticing or for wondering or for being concerned. So, um, so those are some of the um, factors about why people don't report uh, and what and why abuse is allowed to continue, and some of the factors about why the perpetrator continues with the abuse are exactly some of the reasons that I've explained that he wouldn't be alone or she wouldn't be alone in thinking that it's okay because you can go online and you can see you know, a whole um, subculture, if you like, of people who will agree with you. Um, so I think, I, I think those are the aspects that people kind of forget. They think it's about the perpetrator and the victim. And, and the, 
you know, we, we need to put it much more into context and think, what is it about our society and our culture that actually facilitates and enables that to happen and to continue to happen? And this is one of the things that we really, really need to be thinking about when we think about elite paedophiles. You know, what are the things that we're doing where we're making it okay for that sort of thing to continue? And then you've got these elite paedophiles not acting individually in these networks. Mm. So there are parallels because Ghislaine Maxwell was a procurer. Mm. And a lot of people, including David Icke, have said that Jimmy Savile was a procurer. Oh, yeah. So I'm sure he was. You've got this. Mr. Fix-It. You know, he <laughs> talked about that, that, that Jim will fix it. And that, and that he, he, he said once that the reason why he was up there with, with the um, elites and everything was because he could fix things for people. And I'm pretty sure that's what he was talking about, yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. So just... as, as well as the public coming up with excuses in their minds not to see it, mm. then you've also got a level of power and protection mm. from your association with extremely powerful people, as we saw with Epstein in the Sweetheart deal. Yes. whereby the victims were labelled as prostitutes and he was you know, basically given a, a get-out-of-jail card after he did his little work release thing. Mm. Um, so how... Is, is, there, is there like an extra deviant factor in the DNA of elite people <laughs> that causes them to, 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 for it to be more, you know, more... I know. Extensive that's, like that. I think that's a really, really good question. And I I, I think, I mean, I, I think my answer is probably no. I think, I think when you can get away with things, you do. And so, for example, you take perfectly ordinary, everyday 19-year-old boys or whatever, 18, 19-year-old boys, stick them in uniform, send them to Vietnam or send them to any kind of like field of battle. And they, the likelihood is that they will rape and, and, and torture. I mean, the, the, what they did to the Vietnamese peasant women, you know, was horrendous. And they were perfectly ordinary, 18, 19-year-old boys. They were not psychopaths. And then you take them out of uniform, put them back into society, and then they continue to be perfectly normal, ordinary adults. So you're saying everybody has the capacity for it? No, I'm not. What I'm saying is there's a certain proportion of people. So, for example... One of the one of one of the illustrations that I that I use when I'm when I'm teaching people on this one is I say so so if you were on an island for example if you were an adult bloke on an island and and there were half a dozen six year olds or something like that right some blokes would have sex with those six year old girls some 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 blokes might rape and torture them right. Some blokes would be extremely helpful and caring and protective and, and loving towards them and it wouldn't cross their minds to hurt them. Because what you've got is you've got a continuum of, of sexuality, you know, which may or may not include a component of sexual attraction towards children. 
You've also got a continuum of sexuality, which may or may not include a component of sadism and dominance and 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 violence and 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 getting off on on other people being incredibly unhappy. And in some men, those two um, things are going to meet. So you're going to have men who are sexually interested in hurting little children and other men who are sexually interested in not hurting little children, but they want to do things to little children that shouldn't be done. Um, And then you've got other men, you know, neither of those things apply. Do you see what I mean? So if if you put men in a situation, I'm I'm talking primarily about men, if you put men in in a context where there is no consequence to what they do, then some men will do really, really appalling things and other men would never do those appalling things. And so I think, I think, and I, I don't know, and I think your question is a very valid one, but I think that we can say that elites harm children and, and, and do the things that they do simply because they can get away with it and possibly because they within their upbringing there are some of these ideas that it's you know it it doesn't hurt kids there's you know there's no such thing as rape the, the these kind of weird ideas you know um so um so i i don't think we have to go down the line of elite being in some way different from us you know they don't need to be shape shifting reptiles or do you know what I mean? In order to make sense of what we see, it's elite deviants. They've got the power. They've got the resources. They know they can get away with. They know things they can get away with it. Most people can't. They know they can get away. And there's another aspect as well: arrogance, because there's also this idea of we don't have to follow this boring bourgeois morality, right? So there's also that, um, that we are ab- above and beyond the law because the law is just for silly people. So I think that there's that as well. And, and there is this idea about the superman, if you like, you know, the ubermensch, um, who, who doesn't need to follow the rules. So I'm sure somebody like Epstein thought that he was such an amazing bloke that the normal rules did not apply. Do you think Prince Andrew then, he's not the brightest guy, he went into this BBC interview knowing he's a royal. A royal is probably never going to go to prison. Mm. So even though he said all those things, he knew going in, nothing's going to happen to him. Well, I mean, his, his career is ruined um, for now, but he's not going to actually get incarcerated and face the consequences of his actions. He knew that from the get-go, so he could just say anything, basically. I'm not sure. I... Okay, I f- think more that he believes it. I don't think that he was just lying. I think he has a sense that he didn't hurt. He, you see, again, when we go back to this idea that if we if we believe that paedophiles are monsters, then they're in that box over there. Therefore, that's got nothing to do with me. Therefore, if I did something that I shouldn't have done, and and that this person now says was very, very harmful to her. Yeah, but I'm not a monster because I know I'm not because I'm a good person. So um, 
Do you see what I mean? Yeah, he's rationalising. Yeah. Because he does believe he's an honourable person. He do- I, think, I think he genuinely does believe that. And I think he genuinely does. And again, this idea, if we go right back to the, to the idea that I sketched out in the very beginning, he's one of these people who thinks, if I pay you sexual attention, you should be grateful. Right? That was such an insight when he said, sex is a good thing. Because it was a, such a bizarre thing to say to that question specifically, well, I, I, and it I gave a real of, yeah. interesting insight into him. Yeah. I, I'm not. I I can't quite remember the. Didn't he, she didn't said, he she mean? Said, it, didn't he mean a, sex is positive in the sense that my um, bloke has to do something? She was asking him, "Was it possible you had sex on this night? Do you not remember having sex on this night?" She kept asking him over and over again, yeah. and he said, "When you're a man." Yeah, sex is a good thing. No, no. I th- well, I you, think... al- you always remember that because it's a good thing, right? And okay. it, it was it was just such a weird response. All oh, right, okay. Yeah, I thought I thought he was meaning like it's a positive thing in in that you have to do a positive thing. In other words, you have to get an erection and physically do something. But so what, okay, what 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 what, <laughs> Sorry. Ki- what kind of a what kind of a criminal is Prince Andrew? And what kind of a on your on, from your research into paedophiles is he a paedophile? What what is he? No, I mean he had as far as I'm aware he had sex with somebody who was seventeen. He right, didn't but, have sex with somebody who was younger than seventeen, as far as I'm aware. So is he then um, someone who was duped by Epstein and Maxwell into a compromising situation where he had sex with a victim of of child sex trafficking? And in and in America, um, the legal age for sex—he had a sex yeah. offender in America. The legal age for sex in some states is eighteen. Eighteen, and 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 where he was having sex, I think it was eighteen, S- which is statutory and, rape in yeah. in some states. Yeah. So I think from Einstein, from Epstein's perspective, I think he was uh, setting up a situation where he was going to sort of um, uh, trap um, Andrew. Um, and I think from Andrew's perspective, he was having sex with somebody who so there was no, 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 no reciprocity, right? He's having sex with her because he's dominant and he's in a position of power and control. And whether he knew that she was a trafficked child or not, I don't know. I mean, she was clearly a vulnerable person. She's not, you know, um, a peer of his in any way. So he was, and the, and the re, and he, I'm sure he knew that the reason why she was having sex with him was because of, you know, his, his power and his authority and, and the fact that he was royal and so on and so forth. You know, it's not like you meet somebody on the street and, and you have a, an equal relationship. So it was an abusive relationship. It was an abuse of power. Um, and, and I, with somebody who was very vulnerable, um, yes. I mean, it, to, to my way of thinking, it wouldn't fall into the category of paedophilia, um, but it certainly would fall into the category of um, coercive and and abusive sexuality. Yeah, well, of a vulnerable person. Let me ask you the same question about Savile then, because there's been allegations of sex with corpses, yeah. um, access to mental patients and prisons, yes. and all this stuff. What level? criminal paedophile do you believe that he truly was do you think some of that was sensationalized no i i expect that that he that he did do those things um 
And again, I think it's about this incredible sense of arrogance and pushing things to the limits. I think I think it's about that, and I and I think and you know just sort of feeling, I I can I can get away with it, so therefore I'm going to do it. Because you saw that in the first Louis through documentary, he was just saying, you know, I can make or break your career. I I have connections and yes. all this stuff. The yes. arrogance, the ego. Yes, yes, and I think that that's the thing that's really really frightening. And you know, when we're, I mean, if we talk about like the Westminster pedophile ring or something like that, you know, and and the number of MPs who seem to have abusive sexual relationships with vulnerable people, and I think again, it's. It's just this sense of arrogance and power and and entitlement and all of those things, isn't it? And, and, and this is what can I just say that this yeah. I think is is where we need to be having this discussion about adult male sexuality generally. You know that why is adult male sexuality so linked with very often with uh, abusiveness and coerciveness and dominance and you know why isn't it more about empathy and intimacy and equality and sharing and you know and and I think it's about we really need to open up that discussion so that the the notion of non-consensual sex be becomes as weird as it ought to be so you talked about elite deviance and yeah. it seems that people in different positions within the elite strata have different levels of power so we saw operation Tree come down as a reaction to savile mm. and you mentioned westminster pedophiles mm. they're at the center of power mm. do you think that the westminster pedophiles through the celebrity pedophiles under the bus to satisfy the public's demand for justice and, and vengeance on all these heinous things that they've been hearing in the news over Savile whilst protecting themselves? Because there wasn't, that I know of, it, it stopped, didn't it, at a certain level of celebrity? Yes. It does seem to have stopped, doesn't it? And and the the inquiry, the child abuse inquiries, sort of, very, it's gone very, very quiet um, I've no idea whether, I mean, that's an interesting idea that they, that they sort of deliberately threw some celebrities under the bus. I don't know. I don't know that it's that well organized. Um, but I think, and we can turn that around, you see, because I think what we can say is that more and more people are beginning to understand sexual abuse exists, sexual abuse of children exists. Sexual abuse of children is incredibly harmful and has long-term effects that go on for decades. Um, and that the way that we think about it at the moment isn't helpful. It isn't working. You know, we've still got an epidemic of child sexual abuse going on. We need to be thinking about radical new approaches. And I think that the public generally and 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 like the people who who are watching this podcast and and who are thinking about you know Epstein and 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 so forth, you know we we're really beginning to develop new 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 stories, new ideas, new ways of thinking about how we can keep children safe and that what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. You know, I think I think that that's really positive. And that is the point of this. That's why we've gone into these dark areas today. 
Now, I put a video up on my channel uh, a few weeks ago. Should I interview a paedophile? And I didn't know how people were going to react. Overwhelmingly, people are saying, no, you know, WTF, what are you thinking? <laughs> um, you know, why would you put a paedophile on your platform? How would you have a paedophile there and not want to strangle him to death? Yes. A minority of people said, yes, you should interview a paedophile. We need to understand where they're coming from. Yeah. We need to formulate uh, better avenues for preventing future victims. And we're not going to be able to do that until we get inside the paedophile mind. Now, you are in a documentary called Paedophiles in Parliament, is it? No, The Paedophile Next Door. The Paedophile Next Door, sorry. Paedophile Next Door. <laughs> the Paedophile <laughs> Next Door. <laughs> Um, Pedophiles in Parliament with Sonia, that's yes. correct. So you're in a documentary called Pedophiles Next Door. That's on YouTube, isn't it? Is that where I watched it? Or was it it's, Netflix? It, it was on Netflix. I think it may still be on Netflix. It is also on YouTube, I think. All right, yeah. I'm going to put the link in that, um, as well as all your other links in the description box below this video. I urge people to watch this. Now, a paedophile was brought onto that documentary. Mm -hmm. And was that, was that something that you had arranged? Yeah, he volunteered. He'd read he'd read um, my books, and he <laughs> he emailed me, and he said, um, "Thank you so much for your books. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know." <laughs> wow! And so and so, we said, "Well, you know, we 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 happen to be sort of thinking about this documentary at this point. Um, how, how do you feel about it?" And he, with immense bravery, came on. You know, and it was hugely, hugely brave. It really challenged me because I'm thinking, this guy did not need to do this. He has now just gone on there, shown his face to the world, mm. but he's a paedophile, so he's brave doing this, but I've also got this impulse to think that I wish he didn't exist. Yes. I mean, we what we need to do, I think, is we need to be able to... to because the word paedophile, you know, triggers such kind of gut reactions in us, you know, but we need to be understanding the paedophilia is the sexual attraction to children. Child sexual abuse is the action. We need to be separating the idea of the attraction from the action. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be saying to people, if you have those thoughts, you didn't choose to have those thoughts, Right. He didn't want those thoughts in his head. He can't take those thoughts out of his head. They exist. They're there. So he has those thoughts in his head. We don't want him ever to act on them and hurt children. So to some extent, we need to be supporting him to stay safe, not hurting children. And I know that that's incredibly controversial. But I think this is the point at which we have to become incredibly grown up and think, what's the most important thing? The most important thing is keeping kids safe. And if one way that we can help to keep kids safe is by supporting people who are sexually attracted to kids and choose not to act on that sexual attraction, then we should be doing that, right? And we should be supporting things like Verped, um, which is this online um, website which has been set up by paedophiles for paedophiles to help them stay non-offending and we should be supporting organizations like stop so which work with people before they've offended so that they don't offend you know because at the moment it we just react after the damage has been done and we need to be proactive and help 
before the damage has been done. And then hopefully it will never be done. So I'd be interested if you're watching this video and you've heard what Sarah said today as to whether you have changed your mind about whether you think I should interview a paedophile or not. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I'm just interested in your opinion on it. Um, just put that down in, in the comment section below this video, please. I know there's going to be an absolute comment storm on a lot of the things that have been raised here today. Um, you said that there's like a cycle of abuse. For example, Maxwell, she may have had things happen to her in her childhood. We're hypothesizing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There and, can and, and, be a cycle and, of abuse, yeah. Okay, so what makes a paedophile? How do, why do they exist? Where do these thoughts come from? Good question. Very good question. Okay, yeah. And the answer is that several different things, I think. So some people seem very, very, very clear that they were born like that that nothing bad happened in their life, that they just that, that that's just the way they are. And genetically, it's not even in their family. Um, it's it's not the kind of thing that would get passed. I mean, in the same way that I don't think homosexuality is something that gets passed on in your genes or anything like that, is it? But, um, I mean, your, your sexuality, um, yeah, can be shaped before birth. So it's unalterable. And then there are other people who um, it looks as though they were traumatized as a child and their kind of their sexuality kind of got stuck at that point and they're endlessly sort of repeating a trauma in a particular way. And their okay. brains are wired differently. With the people who are born that way, it looks as though there's some evidence that their brains may be wired slightly differently. Yeah. Yeah. That they're more likely to be um left handed or ambidextrous and they're they're more likely to be you know, there is there are certain features which seem to indicate you wouldn't be able to alter that. And then there are other people, as I say, who um, have been to, th they, they are, they, they, they define themselves as paedophile, they go to therapy, they come out of therapy, they define themselves as no longer paedophile. So for some people, it is something that can change. And, and, and those, you know, those, the, both of those seem to be true. Uh, and again, we don't know what statistics are because we haven't done enough research on it. And that the research again, really, really needs to be done. So, it takes a different kind of human to not feel the suffering of their victims. Where does that component come from? And again, I think empathy is um, is on a continuum. So, so, so some of these people who are sexually attracted to children, they totally get empathy, right? And that's why they wouldn't hurt the kid. Or the empathy is kind of, distorted or misplaced and and again it's it's kind of linked to this idea of of of, of normative male sexuality if you like where normative male sexuality is often not very empathic um and so you know it's not that unusual to kind of um put your version of reality on top of somebody else's version of reality. So so the other person is is sort of saying, I, I don't really want this. Yeah, you do. Of course you do. Right? And 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 so it, it's kind of like a normal level of empathy, if you like. Because a lot of people do that. Do you see what I mean? And then of course you've got the people who are um as we were saying before, you know, they're, they're over on this end of the continuum and, and they are sadistic or whatever and they really don't care. 
what would you like to say in conclusion to the people watching this? And there's probably victims of child yes. sex abuse out there. And, Absolutely, there will yeah. be. I mean, and, and I'm really, really sorry if anybody was kind of like too shocked or horrified by the quotations or anything like that. And, and they were, you know, very harsh. And I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. But I think, I think we do as adults need to become so much more grown up about this. I think we have been, you know, we've been quite almost self-indulgent in a way. And we've, child protection has been about almost protecting adults and keeping adults comfortable and it shouldn't matter you know adults it's okay for adults to be uncomfortable if it means that children are safer and i think the the um the the messages that that i would want to sort of finish with are that there will certainly be people who are listening to this podcast who have experienced child sexual abuse you know and I, and i hope that this podcast has not been too uncomfortable for them there are also people listening to this podcast who have understood what I've been talking about, about feeling sexually aroused to children. Okay, there are people who, who th that is a reality in their, in their lives. Say some of those watching this and they're having those thoughts. Mm. Is there an organization or could they get in contact with you to try and prevent them from acting out? Is there a way that they could, the, the somewhere they could go? I think the most important thing to, to take away from this for, for those people is you're not alone, okay? You're not alone. There's lots and lots of people like you. You're not a monster. It is in no way inevitable that you're going to harm children. You always have the choice. You're a moral person just like any other moral person and you, you can always have that choice. Um, and yes, there is help and advice. You just have to be very, very careful about it. Um, and if you, if you contact Verped, I think Verped will help. Okay. Um, if you go to your GP, to be quite honest, your GP won't have a clue what to do and, and may possibly report you, you know, your, your family doctor, um, because they don't know how to handle this yet. Um, and, and again, a lot of therapists still don't know how to handle this. Uh, and that's that's why this organisation stops. So is so important because it's got specially trained therapists. So so uh, the best place if you're in Britain is stopso.org.uk. I think it's called. Um, I ought to know. Um, and in America, there's a lot of good resources on a website called stopitnow.org uh, as well. So Stop It Now is a international organisation now. So it's in most countries in the world. Well, if we can prevent one victim mm. by having one potential perpetrator get help yep. after watching this podcast you know it's it's been worth its weight in gold i've interviewed people from all walks of prison some of the biggest baddest gangsters in the country and nothing has shook me to the core like what you said today but that's a credit to your not just um brilliant research but also your well-meaning attitude in this world where everybody's you know it's just kill the pedophile kill the pedophile you're right i don't believe that that is ever gonna um prevent the victims we need to understand the, the pedophile mind which we've gone into today to prevent the victims to come up with the solutions so i, th I think that's why your work is so invaluable and i'd just like to ask everybody who's been watching this if you could please put your questions and comments below the video and huge thank you to all people who have subscribed to the channel. If you've not subscribed yet, 
The logo is in the bottom right-hand corner of this video. Huge thank you to all the people who've donated on PayPal, Patreon, Just Giving to enable us to produce true crime podcasts in a studio with a sound engineer and a cameraman at this level. So you guys are really helping us keep all of this going. And I like to, uh, sometimes I end these with the, with the Arizona prison handshake. <laughs> are you familiar with the Arizona prison handshake? Not. You've no. not learned it from the videos I, I yet. ought to have learned it, oughtn't <laughs> I? <laughs> Brilliant, well Bless done, you. thank you. Bless yeah, you. you too. <laughs>